Hello and welcome back to Horror from the High Desert. I am your host, Scotty Milder, and this week I'm taking a little break from the author interviews to have my Boston best friend Mandy Connor back on the show. This week we talk about a couple movies, uh, the 2015 film Hell House LLC and the very recent release of The Breach, which is of course the adaptation of the Nick Cutter novel. At the end of the episode, I also take a few minutes to talk to my good friend Chad Brummett. Anyone in Albuquerque knows Chad. Chad's a local actor, local director, local filmmaker, journalist, news anchor, all-around impresario, and just really good guy. I've known Chad about 20 years now. I've worked with him on a bunch of films, and uh, he's directing an adaptation of Dracula here in town at the Vortex Theater. So we spent a few minutes talking about that. As always, if you could, uh, go on over to whatever streaming platform you're using. Go ahead and rate, review, subscribe. Five-star reviews are awesome and uh, very much appreciated. And here we go with Mandy Connor. The first one you recommended, the second one I recommended. So which one do you want to start with? I want to start with mine because mine was way better. Yeah, and uh, spoiler alert, I agree. Yeah, yours was much better. (laughs) uh let's dive in what was what was your movie my pick was hell house which mm-hmm. i mean when i technically first it's home, called hell house llc I think. yes yes yeah. you were correct yep i i can't remember the first time i watched hell house i want to say it was like three or four years ago and it was like mm-hmm. you know I, i've described my movie watching experience through the winter time which is literally i'm just doing work with const a constant stream of horror movies going mm-hmm. so it becomes harder and harder to find good quality stuff over time just mm-hmm running out of options, landed on Hell House LLC. And I was kind of blown away by it. I love this movie. I want to say at this point in time, I have probably watched it about 15 times all the oh, way wow. through. It's like a, that's a comfort watch for me at this stage. When I have nothing else going on, I will throw it on. I will even as, as recently as yesterday, watch the second one. Hell, mm-hmm. like, there's three in total in the series. And so I feel like it's just a comfort watch at this stage, but Another one of these great found footage movies. Mm-hmm. Looking back there, I'm realizing that found footage is like one of my favorite genres when it's done really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll get there because I saw the second, uh, the second one. Uh, like mm-hmm. I watched Hell House uh, LLC one, and then I watched the first sequel. And I think for me, that's a good example of like the what would I say the. Uh, the dichotomy between doing one really well and one maybe not so well, but we'll get there. Totally, Um, totally. Yeah, I think the first one was really, really fun. The premise (laughs) being it's it's a group of, you know, maybe 20-something-year-olds who run professional haunted houses across the country. So we've got a group of, I forget, five or six people, and they sort of, you know, they find like a great location to do a professional level haunted house. Mm-hmm. They come in about a month in advance, they hire the actors, they create the premise. You know, it's a, it's a lot of the fun of like kind of what goes into planning a professional haunted house, which is yeah. just fun. But it is done in that great found footage way. And as time goes on, you realize that there's a lot more going on at the house, there's a lot more going on to the backstory. And, you know, I'm not going to say like the acting was the greatest I've ever seen, but I thought the acting was pretty good. I actually think the acting is quite good in the first yeah. one. Uh huh. Not talking about the second one, but the first one I thought was like, mm-hmm. I, I was 
pretty impressed. Yeah, I think it's like one well, one thing I like about it is like I'm I'm okay with found footage films. I should say I'm more than okay with found footage films. I know there's like a a whole I, I think people are a little over it, but like a few years ago, people were like, "Oh, found footage is the worst." Like I like it. I will defend this. This is the bridge I'm going to die on, or the hell I'm <laughs> this is the hell I'm going to die on, right? I think that there's some great found footage out there. We all know it started with Blair Witch, right? Mm -hmm. Unless there's something before then that I don't know about. Yeah, I mean, there's a few, but, like, Blair Witch is really the one that, like... Set the tone. I mean, technically, like, go all the way back to, like, Cannibal Holocaust and stuff. But, like, Blair Witch is really what kind of put it in the zeitgeist or the mainstream. Totally. But you've got some great some great found footage that have come out since then paranormal activity i fucking mm -hmm. love paranormal activity mm -hmm. even though i know we've talked about this before it is actually that is not a horror movie it is just the story of a toxic relationship <laughs> <laughs> and then you've yeah. got um as above so below another one i rewatched yesterday which i mean that's actually like kind of so english like top tier production well that's one i have not seen which is um i really want to get to that because i really like the filmmakers and i'm gonna mention i, I love it i love it it plays on um historical ass like you've got a little bit of like the da vinci code like just hints at it mm -hmm. but then you also have like traveling down to hell and you've got like nicholas flamel and you've got like just a lot it's got like tones of like indiana jones in it but ultimately it's mm -hmm. pretty fucking scary and creepy and i love i think it's really well done well i think like for me like the whole found footage thing is it's like to me it's to make these blanket statements like found footage is awesome or found footage is terrible is like it's like any genre or subgenre where it's like some of them are good some of them are bad you're you gonna know? get a variety you're, yeah. you're even gonna get a variety within a hell house llc <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, and I would agree with that. I think because like I, I still defend the Blair Witch Project. Although I will say, like for me, the Blair Witch Project on like multiple rewatches, it goes a little off the rails towards the end. And I would say just some of the acting choices, I think, get a little too like, oh, now we're playing crazy. Like the woods are driving us crazy, and it's like I, I find Heather to be insufferable. Start I mean, I think she's kind of a supposed to be right but she she gets hard to watch towards the end it's a little hard to watch yes and yes. and there's one scene i remember with mike where he's like sitting there rocking and i'm like that's the most obvious choice you can make you know yeah. so it's so, like i could pick apart blair witch project but like one thing i love about the blair witch project is it ends up being this weird like avant-garde film because because since the filmmakers don't know how to actually film anything because it's just the actors like half of it is just like shots of their feet and stuff which They're makes like it actually feet. like Experimental really? film. Yeah, it's like it's almost like Skinnamarink or something. It's like this weird, like bizarre experimental film. But back to Hell House, like, yeah. so I had been wanting to see it forever, but I, it's just one of those I hadn't got around to. I'd heard pretty good things about it. Now we should we should clarify that actually, technically, it's not a found footage film. It's a mock documentary uh, that okay. incorporates found footage. I mean, that's me being like super pedantic about it. But no, like, no, no, you're totally right. You're totally right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And it reminded me of one of actually my favorite films of that kind of genre, which is the Poughkeepsie tapes, mm -hmm. where it, like it takes this found footage element, but then it kind of structures it in a way that makes sense around this idea of the documentary. And I think doing something as a mock documentary rather than a straight found footage, it allows them to kind of be more interesting in terms of the structure, because there's a lot of kind of flashing forward, flashing back. 
they do a lot of really great foreshadowing where it's like at the beginning of Hell House. So, so basically the setup, like you said, of Hell House LLC is we have this group of people, like you said, it's about five of them from New York. And they go into, I think it's supposed, I know they shot it in Pennsylvania, but it's supposed to be upstate New York, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They find this abandoned hotel and they're like, we're going to, you know, one of them uh, is like the kind of the head of the company. He's really pushing it. He's like, look at this great location I found. We're going to do this haunted house here. It's like, it basically is like already almost like set decked because it's already creepy and stuff. And then, of course, we're cutting between that and, like, people discussing it and talking about, like, and news footage and stuff where it's like, we know that on open, like, from the start, this isn't even a spoiler. We know that on opening night, 15 people died, including basically everyone in the um, in the company. And for anyone who knows like a historical background or, you know, biblical background, the name of the hotel is the Abaddon, mm-hmm. which um, I want to say it's Greek for a place of dis- destruction. Yeah, I think uh, that's I looked that up. I think that's an right. underworld abode of lost souls or hell. It's literally like another word for hell. So, I mean, you know, it's mm-hmm. not super chill that they're foreboding right and like you know in terms of what the horror is i wouldn't say it's the most it kind of goes like in a way where you expect it to go but the way everything unfolds is actually found like pretty unpredictable like what they do with the different characters and i think a lot of that is because the acting is really kind of it's definitely better than you expect what this movie does that i think a lot of found footage movies don't do well and i and i would say the sequel falls into this trap is that it, the actual dialogue actually feels pretty like improv it, yeah. yeah i mean it feels like kind of in the moment like you really are just capturing footage i think a lot of the less successful found footage films it's like you can tell there's a script yeah and it just really kind of highlights how fake it feels and you yeah. don't really get that with hell house right I also love the, I love how they shoot it where, you know, yes, it is dark. You can, you don't have a clear sense for how the house is laid out. And mm-hmm. I always, find that, I always find that in situations like that, there's just a little bit of, of a sense of confusion. You're never comfortable because you don't know. All right. I know we're in the living room now, but I don't know how the living room connects these four other right. rooms. Right. You know, it's there's very not- disorienting. Yeah. Yes. And even in the basement, the basement is much, much larger than you're initially sort of shown. You know, you see like there's our basement. It looks like a typical root cellar basement. But then there's other sections of the basement, other rooms, and it's very disorienting. And there's a whole section that's like boarded up in the basement. Yeah. 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 You don't have a clear understanding of how the house is laid out at any point in time. Yeah. In that sense, it's like, I mean... Uh, I don't know if I've talked about it on this podcast. I know I've talked about it on my other podcast, but like anyone who knows me knows how much I hate the movie version of The Shining. Mm-hmm. But what the movie actually does really well, and, and obviously they, they talk about it, the documentary, I think it's like Room 237, that documentary, where Stanley Kubrick really goes out of his way to design a hotel that doesn't make sense. Totally. Yep. And like what's great about Hell House LLC is they didn't even have to design it, it kind yeah. of just doesn't make sense. Yeah, and and you're right. It is really disorienting. Like the the um, you never quite know where you're at in the hotel. And then something they try to play with in the sequel with like I would say more limited effect. 
but in you know they, it just kind of exists in the original film without them even having to say anything about it where it's like it's really believable that you could get lost in this hotel which is not by the way like super huge when you see it from the outside yeah. it's like a roadside hotel you know yeah it's a road it looks more like a big house than mm -hmm. a formal hotel would um right kind of run down something you would see in sort of like a kind of rundown town you know, mm -hmm. but yes, I love how disorienting the house is and that it just feels like I don't I have literally watched this movie 15 times. I cannot mm -hmm. figure out how the basement is laid out. I don't understand yeah. how there's so many sub rooms within the basement, even though we focus so much of the movie on the main room of the basement. I, like I can't sketch out a map for how it lays out. Mm -hmm. And I love that about it. I love it. I want to be confused. Yeah. Well, yeah, because it, it's the whole idea of, like, I mean, it, it, it's, like, things are just a little bit off. It's the whole idea of the uncanny, where it's, like, you know, on the surface, it's, like, it's just a hotel. But then it's just, like, it's just a little bit wrong. You know, there's just, you get a, like, real sense of wrongness from it, where it's, like, the stairs going upstairs just are too narrow and too low. Yeah. And, like, the way the bedrooms are laid up upstairs is just really strange and, like... Yeah, I thought I'm not. You know, it's it's it'd be interesting to like really talk to the filmmaker. I cannot remember the guy's name. I, I meant to write it down and really talk to him about like how much of that was planned in terms of how they like edited it and like choreographed the shots. Because obviously, it's it's an existing location. They didn't build sets or anything. Right. You know, did they find this hotel and like plan shots in a way to make it more disorienting than it really is, or is it really just that disorienting? <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. I, I I will say, not that ratings have anything to do with it, but um, it does have an audience rating of four point two out of five, which I think is pretty high for yeah, that's pretty good. A relatively under, you know, under the radar horror movie. I wouldn't say this is like a you know top tier horror movie. It did come out in twenty fifteen. I want to say mm -hmm. I didn't discover it till like twenty nineteen. And it um, did get a lot of buzz. Like I remember, I don't know if it was like I remember reading about it at the time. But just over the years, it's one of those movies that kind of pops up on a lot of lists. And it's it's really kind of become a cult film. Yeah. So in watching it, did you have a favorite moment? Or did you have a favorite scare, I should say? I'll tell you the... the and so I, I, I do kind of want to, even though it is a few years old, we should probably somewhat avoid spoilers. So I'm going to try and be a little bit circumspect sure, just be vague, be vague. yeah i'll be a little vague there's a scene where someone is hanging from a hook uh -huh. and as shit starts to go real super sideways something it's very it's glimpsed from like a moving camera very much in the background as something is approaching this person i know what you're talking about and yeah. that just it hit all my heebie-jeebie buttons because it's like Here's this person who's hanging from a hook who's just there to, like, they're an actor in the haunted yeah. houses. I, I think we can say that much. Yep. And all of a sudden, they can't get away. And everyone else, and I think it's the idea that everyone else is abandoning them. Yeah. Because it's when all of a sudden things go real, like, it's, like, clear this isn't just a haunted house anymore, mm -hmm. you know? And so it's it's a very simple moment, but that's really the image that, like, keeps sticking with me. I think what you're also talking about in that moment, it's when things have really gone sideways. And um, what I love in that moment, two aspects of it. One, you do have that somebody is filming the mockumentary and mm -hmm. you get the glitches in the film where mm -hmm. it's 
Oh, it glitches out. It'll stop and pause just long enough for you to see something really awful happening, just starting to enter the frame. And I love that. I thought that was really well done in this movie. Mm -hmm. Secondly, yes, there is an aspect of this where it is supposed to be an active haunted house. You have actors in the haunted house acting like they're scared or, you know, acting like monsters. And so there's this struggle for the audience who's going through the haunted house. Like, is this supposed to be happening? And they say that a lot. Mm -hmm. The people in line are saying, wow, is that supposed to be happening? So you can tell that there is confusion in the audience who's supposed Mm -hmm. to be in the haunted house. There's confusion by the actors who are like, this isn't supposed to be happening. Yeah, this isn't why we rehearsed. Right. And the chaos of it, I think, is so much fun. But I do, I love those those really well-placed camera glitches that catch it, you know, catch things at just the right time. Yeah. And and I, I think that works pretty well because it actually feels like, again, that's the type of thing that in a, in a less successful movie, it would be like too obvious. But in this one, it never really called attention to itself. Yeah. You know, the way they're, and that's another thing I like about um, the Poughkeepsie tapes, by the way. Have you seen that one? I haven't seen it. I, I can't believe I haven't seen it. I'm going to put it on my list. I will warn you, it's it's um it's pretty fucking dark. It's a serial killer, and it's basically like tapes from a serial killer. Googling of his it, kills. I'm, I'm googling it, and I don't even want to tell you how poorly I misspelled Poughkeepsie. <laughs> <laughs> but proceed. <laughs> no, I really, I really like the Poughkeepsie tapes, and I will say it's not necessarily all that graphic, but it is a movie that I've recommended to people, and people have been mad at me after they watched it. So I just want to give that warning. I think you could probably handle it. But like what it does is there's a lot of stuff that's meant to be, you know, home video from the serial killer. And then they've clearly gone in and post and like super degraded the image. What works in the Poughkeepsie tapes is that you get the sense, because the whole idea is that the police have found this cache of tapes from this unknown serial killer. Mm-hmm. And what really works is you get the sense that he has watched these tapes over and over and over again because they're That's degraded right. in that way where like old VHS, which like when yeah. you watch it too much, mm-hmm. degrades. And so it's like very, it adds this very spooky style to it without ever feeling phony to me. I mean, I feel like Hell House LLC, like the way the glitches work in LLC, like feels pretty like, like you subconsciously notice it, but you're not thinking about it. Whereas, like, I've definitely seen other, I mean, even Cloverfield, which I like, but every time Cloverfield glitches away and you see, like, yeah. what the tape is recording over, it's like, okay, I, like, we're telling perfect. this parallel story of their, like, beautiful day at Coney Island. It's too it. perfect. It's too it's curated. Too it doesn't yeah. feel organic in that moment. Yeah, I, right. I agree. I like Cloverfield. I don't love it, but I like it. And right. yeah, when it pulls up, like, oh, them riding the roller coaster together, you're kind of well, like, oh. Cloverfield, you know? I, I mean, I, I like Cloverfield quite a bit but it falls into that problem of it's supposed to be found footage and yet the camera's always landing on these like perfectly composed shots of you know it's it's very clean found footage it's very you know right well produced and like hell house i mean there's a lot of stuff even that that moment i was talking about with the person hanging from the hook it's like you barely see it it's like the camera just kind of whips by it Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not in frame. It's not well. Like, you you have to be looking mm-hmm. for it. Yeah, yeah. I remember I've actually paused and, like, backed up a couple times just to get a full visual of what I was actually looking at in that mm-hmm. moment, which is mm-hmm. fun. It's, it's nice to be able to, like, have a, a move. I, this is what I liked about it. I thought it was really well done, but also, like, not perfect. It would just had that grittiness, that sort mm-hmm. of B level that makes it believable and makes it fun. You know, mm-hmm. it's 
too perfect. And like you've seen it 15 times. I've only seen it once now. But I feel like this is a loser when you say that. (laughs) Well, what I was going to say is like this feels like a movie that's in a way that a lot of found footage films aren't. This actually feels like a pretty rewatchable film. Yeah. And it, and it is because it's the type of movie where there's a lot of scares happening in the background that you barely see. So I feel like every time you see it, you're going to see something a little bit. Yes. Yeah. And and there's a lot of situations, again, 15 times through, where they don't even call the audience's attention to mm-hmm. fucked up things that have happened. You don't notice it. You wouldn't notice it unless you literally watched it like a loser, like I have 15 times. Like there are things that happen that they never call your attention to. And, mm-hmm. and you as an audience find them. They're these delightful Easter eggs hidden throughout the movie right. that don't really become a thing unless you see it. My favorite part of the movie, there is a moment when one of the um, production, the haunted house production team, they're all sleeping in the house. They're mm-hmm. living in the house while they're getting it ready for right. Halloween. So they all have different bedrooms. And there's a, a part where one of them wakes up in the middle of the night. He's, you know, part of this mockumentary and he like turns on the the video. He's looking at the video camera. He turns it Mm -hmm. on. He's got his back to the door in the wall and he's talking to the camera for maybe three minutes. And he's just like, oh, your problems we're having at the haunted house, blah, blah, blah. And he's just like, can't sleep, woke up, figured he would record a little bit. But there's some fucked up shit in the room behind him the Mm -hmm. whole time. Mm -hmm. And it's not a jump scare. What is the opposite of a jump scare? It's like this slow burn where you Mm -hmm. want to scream the camera and be like, turn around. (laughs) There's something in the room. But it it like vibes like that for like three minutes until he notices it. And then you're like doubly scared. Well, it's a great because it builds off an earlier moment where he's doing the same thing and you see a character wander into the room behind him and you yeah. feel like oh we're gonna get the scare but it turns out and again this is early so i don't think it's a big spoiler but it's like oh it's someone part of the crew who's sleepwalking it's not, it's and, not. yeah it's not. so yes you but, think uh, but that's a great moment because it's like oh the creepy ghost and then it turns he's like oh blah 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 you okay yeah yeah and so you feel like when you get that in the later moment that you're talking about it's like it makes you think back to like, oh my god. It makes you god. think back to that, but then it's like it goes somewhere very different. <laughs> I love time. I love this movie because I think on rewatch it has layers and mm-hmm. I like you notice new things every time mm-hmm. you watch it. This movie excites me. It thrills me. Like it makes me feel, even though I've watched it so many times, I still get scared at certain moments. Mm-hmm. And otherwise, I mean, I'm pretty dead inside, so it's nice to feel something. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's a great it's also got a real great balance of jump scare to non jump scare. Like yeah. I'm not someone who's like against jump scares. I think jump scares are like they serve their purpose, but it's got a few great jump scares, but then it's the overall approach of the film is more the slow building dread. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And so and the jump scares, they're really good at like throwing them in. Not at the moment you think they're going to come. There's there's some really good misdirection. Totally. Can we talk a little bit about the sequel? I haven't watched the third one. Yeah, let's pull out that steamy pile of shit. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it, there are moments in the sequel that are effective. Like, I do want to give it credit. But it kind of does everything wrong that the first one does right. Because it's so self-aware. It's so yeah. self-aware. Well, and it's like, it's trying to capture that lightning in a bottle a second time, and it just yeah. can't. The first one feels organic. Like, I, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm watching 
you know, a documentary, like, I feel like I'm in it. I can immerse myself in it. The second one, the acting, I think is shitty. It's pretty bad. Yeah, bad acting. Um, And it just Bad seems... script. It's, it's and again, it's one of those scripts where it's like, you can feel it feels very scripted. It's distracting. It's mm. distracting, like, how, how the performances are not good. You know it's scripted, and so you're sort of distracted by that, and you can't really immerse yourself in, like, the fun of going back to the hotel, you right. know? It's also... I mean, it's almost entirely jump scares. Yeah. And they're pretty lame jump scares. Like, they're pretty cheap. And then you get to the end, and it's just like, the first one has, I'm not even going to call it a twist, but it has an unexpected reveal at the end. The second one, I saw it coming, the twist, I saw it coming from like 20 minutes into the movie. Yeah, wait a second. So, I don't, again, I don't want to reveal things, but I feel like I watched the second one, and I was kind of like, oh, those actors are different or the, mm-hmm. there's supposed to be actors in a moment and it's it it's there's like a lack of continuity yeah and then you just get this like exposition dump at the end from the the big bad yeah who reveals the evil plan and it's just like why like there was there was room actually i think to build on the first one yep you could have a, really they done don't, they don't tie up the storyline i mean there, there was is, a lot of yeah, well, like there's there's some big open threads in the first one. And one thing I like about it, it doesn't wrap it up in a neat little bow. But then yeah. they start trying to tie everything up. And I haven't, I'm probably not even going to bother with the third one. Yeah, third one, I mean, third one ties it all up with a little bow. And it's, you know, it's fun, but it's not mm-hmm. great. You know, I made the mistake of watching them back to back too, um, because I was so into Hell House that I was like, oh, I'm going to watch the sequel. And then it immediately was like, oh, it was just like deflating, you know? Yeah. But what it actually did is is that because I feel like you can just kind of discard the second one and just really keep the first one because it's the same filmmaker. But I think what the mistake he made is I think the first one was successful. They were like, let's do a sequel. And then again, like I said, he was trying to capture that lightning in a bottle. And there's a lot of just trying way too hard in the second one. So I feel like it's just like, okay, it was a misstep. I don't need all the explanation of all the lore and stuff. I feel like that's all stuff he made up later yeah uh, to try and kind of like backfill into the sequel so i'm just gonna like stick with the first one and be like you know i don't think we need everything explained i don't think we need to see everything yeah it's perfect yeah but i would i think it's i think it's like i would strongly recommend people watch the first one Mm -hmm. but treat it as a standalone film because like i just don't i mean you know watching the second one didn't ruin the experience of the first one for me so if you want to watch them they're fine but it's just like you don't i I haven't watched the third one but you certainly don't need to see the second one they feel like independent projects like they they feel like very loosely connected you know i mean in the weird way the second one almost feels like a parody of the first one yeah yeah but back to the first one like i think you know it's one of those things where it's like i feel like i've seen versions of this movie before i say this about like when uh, last episode, I had Daniel Brahm on, the author Daniel Brahm. We're talking about the movie Q. Have you ever seen that? No. It's no. like early 80s monster movie. It was like okay. stop motion animation uh, monster attacking New York, basically. Okay. Yeah. And it's what it is. <laughs> like yeah. it's, it's super very much a B movie. You know what's funny? I always thought Q, I'm looking at the movie poster now, I always thought that that was somehow tied into, like, Godzilla. Yeah, no, it's not. I mean, it, it's it's got elements of, like, the kaiju movie, but it's actually very much its own thing. Okay. 
And it's one of those movies that it's like, it's very much a B movie. It's like, I don't want to oversell it. Yeah. But it's just like 10 to 15% better than you expect. It's just like a little smarter, <laughs> a little wittier. The acting's just like a little bit more interesting. You know, even the like goofy stop motion effects of the monster are like have their this charm to them that like makes it feel very old fashioned and it's just it's just like a more interesting movie than you expect from something like that and that's kind of how i feel about hell house and i would actually say it's more than like 10 to 15 percent better than you expect yeah it's like a good like 25 to 30 percent better than i would have i had very low expectations the first time i watched it i was like Mm -hmm. oh i've never heard of this and you think you know what you're gonna get you know i was I'm so into this. This is like a, it's a happy place for me. I will watch mm. it 15 more times this year alone. I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think I will definitely rewatch it because I think it's, like I said, as, as a found footage film, it feels rewatchable in a way that a lot of them aren't. It is. You're going to see things the second, third viewing that you didn't catch the first time. I, mm. I love I love a rewatchable horror movie. You know, we all know that there's like a ton of movies out there that once you know what's coming, it's not rewatchable. You've lost the scares. Mm-hmm. This one, I feel like the scares, that like the quality of the scares stay with it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And and I will say I watched it because I did watch them back to back. So it was in the evening, but it wasn't like super late at night. Mm-hmm. And it like got under my skin. <laughs> like, I mean, it like... It definitely spooked me in a way that I was like, oh, I, I didn't expect that. And then yeah. and then the second one kind of like, okay, well, I'm not spooked anymore. I think but it's unassuming. It's unassuming. And yeah, it, it's what makes it work is that you actually really don't feel like it's trying too hard. It's not trying to be more than it is. Maybe that's part of the problem with the second one is it's trying yeah. to be more than it is. And it's trying to build a whole mythology that we don't really need. And like, yeah, well, that's what happened with paranormal activity. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, because the first two of those are really good, and then they kind of start to, you know. Yeah, I don't need the whole fucking backstory. I, right. I don't need to know the whole in-depth process. You know. I mean, it's and it's, that's a problem with like just a horror movie franchise in general. Yeah, is is like as you get into the later movies, it's always becomes about like over-explaining things, and like my probably my least favorite movie of like the last quarter century <laughs> is prometheus <laughs> yeah <laughs> because okay. it just to me it just wrecks alien and, and they kind of rescue it a little bit with alien covenant which is actually was a lot better than i expected i didn't see alien covenant i've watched prometheus a couple times like prometheus is beautiful to look at but it just I, I hate how it just everything that's mysterious about the alien movies and about the xenomorph is just uh spelled out for you in Prometheus. Also yeah, in Prometheus it's it's typical movie of like the human characters just start making really stupid decisions mm-hmm. for screenwriting convenience. You know? Sure. Yeah. It's like why are they taking off the helmet? Why is the like the the biological scientist think the weird snake thing is cute? Like does he not know right. like but it's like there there is um there is a lack of restraint when it comes to mystery in the horror realm and i'm sure that some of this is like producers and directors being like we gotta fucking get paid you know Mm -hmm. but yeah well they're trying to milk that cow where like the first alien sequel aliens Mm -hmm. what i think actually makes aliens really great as a sequel is it's not trying to be the same movie. It's like, okay, let's let's now turn it into like a war action movie. 
but it also doesn't try to explain anything. It's like, yeah. no, it's just we're returning and now there's more of them. And now we got Marines and we're going to blow a bunch of them up. You but saw like, the title. It went from singular to plural. You know what the fuck. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And I mean, that's all you need. That's all I wanted out of the sequel is for something to be its own thing and not step on the toes of the original. And I, th- I think that's why Aliens is probably the, I mean, it's among the best horror sequels that's ever been made yeah because it doesn't make the mistake that almost all of them do and i feel like yeah hell house 2 just falls right into the trap of the horror franchise of like oh now we need to explain things now we need to up the ante now we need to turn it into this bigger thing and it's like no you don't you really don't yeah yeah i don't i don't actually need to know why i'm Mm -hmm. just having fun (laughs) yeah (laughs) so should we move on to talk about (laughs) my let's talk about um, yours my uh, unfortunate recommendation. Oh, uh, have you? So, have you watched it before? No. Okay. All right. So, we were both in it for the first time. Yeah. So, I'll let me set it up a little bit. So, I recommended The Breach. Yep. And there are a couple of reasons why I wanted to watch this one. Um, the big one is I loved the book. So, the, the book is written by uh, Nick Cutter. Love Nick Cutter, I'm sure all you horror fans know. Um, you Nick get Cutter. him on the show. When are you going to get Nick Cutter on here? I would love to. Um, and, and I did meet him very briefly at Stoker. Really? Club, but I didn't get a chance to like ask him to come on or anything. I want to talk about the troop ad nauseum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyone who doesn't know, Nick Cutter is the pen name of a Canadian writer named Craig Davidson, who is known for writing. He was already kind of a known like literary author. And then, but he's really like at heart, a horror guy. Um, So he created this pen name, alternate ego, Nick Cutter to write really intense body horror type stuff. And he's great. I mean, the troop is the book that put me back on the path of like getting away from movies and going mm-hmm. back to fiction writing. Like mm-hmm. my experience of listening to that audiobook is what kind of was like, oh, this is what I want to do. Who you reads know? the audiobook? I didn't read the audiobook. I actually read the book this time. Yeah, I was uh I was driving back from LA to uh Albuquerque. Yeah. And I was listening and I was just like, I need an audiobook and I'd heard of it. This is probably 2015 or whenever the book. No, no, like who's who like reads it on the the audio I don't remember. I don't remember one of you. I wasn't like who reads the audiobook. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No, but I was I was just gonna say, like, you know, I was I was coming back from LA to Albuquerque to teach a class. It was like late at night. I was like, I need an audiobook, threw it on. Got so immersed in it, I forgot to turn at Barstow and ended up driving to Las Vegas on accident. <laughs> and like, and then it was like sometime around two in the morning outside of Flagstaff, something in the book happens that was so disgusting, I almost drove off the road. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> and I and I just had this revelation where I was like, I'm more invested in this than I have been in a movie or TV show in years. So it's like, what am yeah. I doing? Why am I trying to do this like movie mm-hmm. thing? Because I'm not really enjoying what I'm doing. And like, this is what I'm so I yeah. give Nick Cutter a lot of credit for like kind of writing the ship for me, you know? Yeah. And yeah. The Breach is, it was an Audible original. It came out in 2020 or 2021. So it was really only available as an audiobook. Mm-hmm. And it's fantastic. It's just, it's great. And so this is his first adaptation of a Nick Cutter novel. And I was like, man, I'd love to see the troop get adapted. I'd actually, if I was ever to go back to being a filmmaker, I would love to adapt the troop myself. Nice. Yeah. I would support that. And so I was like, okay, like I get to see Nick Cutter kind of on the screen. And then it was like, and it's produced by Slash. Okay, that's interesting. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then we got the movie. And then so, we got the movie. <laughs> do you want to? I don't know. Do you do you want to give the setup? Uh, you know what? I, or should I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say I found the acting so bad that it was it distracted me from the rest of the movie. Yeah. I I had trouble watching the movie and following the storyline because the acting was like so bad. I thought the lead guy who mm-hmm. plays the sheriff was kind of not bad, and then everyone else is god awful. Yeah. I mean, among the worst acting I've seen in it was pretty bad but here's the problem like i could tell that i would like the story a lot Mm. if not for this medium and that's fine so now i'm going to double back and i'm going to do the audiobook so i have because you've read i mean you mentioned the trip you've read nick cutter right i have yeah i haven't read the breach but um yeah i do Mm. love nick cutter yeah and and the breach the the book is good and and like so just a little bit of like plot setup if you haven't seen it. Um, it takes place. It's not clear in the movie, but in the book, it's pretty clear that it's in the Yukon, so like northern Canada. Um, and it's this small community called Lone Crow, and you've got the like local sheriff, like world weary local sheriff, who's like about to be transferred down to the big city. So it's like his last week on the job in this small town, and then a boat just like drifts down from up north on the river. And it's got a real fucked up dead body. I actually like the opening to the movie because it opens. It starts off all right. Yeah. Just the like the opening leading into the opening credits where that they discover the boat. And mm-hmm. that's a moment. And I liked it. No, I, when that happened, I was like, oh, this is like getting off to a good start. And pretty quickly went off the rails. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, you get, you get the boat arrives, and then so they identify the body. They figure out it's the scientist who's rented this house 15 miles up the river. And what's he been doing up at the house? He's been up there a year by himself. Ooh. And so they go to like inv- he and his ex girlfriend, who uh, is like basically gives boat tours, like will transport people up and down the river. And the local coroner go up to investigate. And that's basically your setup. And then it moves into like a lot of body horror, a lot of cosmic horror type stuff. And some of it is fun. Here's what I will mm-hmm. say about it. I actually thought the, I don't know how to describe it, the special effects, the costuming, mm-hmm. like the makeup aspects of it were really fun. Mm-hmm. Like they were gruesome. They were very Nick Cutter. It was like, they, I thought that was actually what they put a lot of their production money into was like, mm-hmm. all right, let's get the gross effects right. At least mm-hmm. as it relates to the person in the bed, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's some good imagery. Now there's yeah. some imagery from the book that doesn't make it into the movie that I was really hoping would be. Now you gotta always like go into these movies being like, they're not going to have the budget to do it exactly the way I want. They're going to have to mm-hmm. cut some corners. So I'm not going to get like all of the like creepy body horror transformations that I wanted exactly right. Yeah. What they did was like pretty good. I feel like towards the end, then it becomes a little too like Night of the Living Dead. Um, with like yeah. a, sort of almost feels like a zombie movie. But like some of those visuals are like, you know, they're not exactly like what you get in the book, but they're pretty effective. They were fun. They were fun. I was, mm-hmm. I was seeing the acting. I was like, oh, this is not going to be good. But then you get to the visuals and some of the visuals are so much fun that there's like a level of redemption. Mm-hmm. It's just, it, I, I wish the acting had been better. The acting and the writing, and unfortunately, I, I do know that Craig Davidson did work on the script, and I don't know how much real input he had on the script. Mm-hmm. It makes some deviations from the source material that I don't understand. Okay. Like, so they took some creative liberties that seemed unnecessary? 
Right. And I'm all for, I understand that like the book and the movie, they have to be different things, Mm -hmm. but they kind of wasted time on some stuff that was like, we didn't need to add. So there's like, they add a whole subplot of like, you got the sheriff and he's there with his ex-girlfriend and then the ex-girlfriend also had a relationship with the coroner. And so they all hate each other. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you wasted a lot of time on that dynamic that could have been spent more towards the actual story. Right. Like, why do we need it? Why do we need this lifetime level of subplot yeah exactly it felt like lifetime movie and like i don't care like in in the book the coroner guy is like super old (laughs) yeah he's like an old man you know um and then they cast like this like hot young hunky guy who's i mean i'm like okay that's fine except he can't act and you added a bad subplot so like yeah the the subplot was distracting it was completely unnecessary and then when you like get into like the story of why the scientist guy was there and his wife shows up like in the movie none of it actually makes any fucking sense like it kind of makes sense in the like there's just a not they have the time or i should say nick cutter has the time in the book to actually like kind of talk about what's going on without again not over explaining it well tell me tell me more about the book Tell me more about the book and the pacing of the book. Tell me more about like the well, structure. It's a much more of a slow burn. I, what I feel like happens in the movie is it's got, they're trying for the slow burn aspect of the book. So there's a lot of time spent setting things up. And then they get to a point, they're like, oh shit, we only have 15 minutes left. And then it's just like, <laughs> boom, 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 boom. Yeah. And all these things are like set up that go nowhere. So like the wasps in the movie yeah. go nowhere. There's a whole uh-huh. reason for the wasps in the book. Okay. Okay. Didn't get that from the movie. There's a lot about like she keeps saying in the movie, like the house is different. Yes. There was like only a dress. Yeah, that's explored in the book. In the movie, it's just like the house is different. You know, they they have this whole thing and they show it in the movie where there's like these weird gaps in the walls like you know you can climb to a vent and then you're in this weird kind of corridor between the walls that doesn't make sense well again that's kind of explored in the book why that's there it's like in the movie it's just like why did they design the house that way they wasted a lot of wood to create some stupid secret passage that doesn't go anywhere right the transformation of the guy in the bed like you said yeah it's pretty well done in the movie it's pretty effective yeah. It's just a lot more upsetting in the book, <laughs> like sure. what he turns into. Mm-hmm. So whereas like I was saying, like Hell House is 20 to 30 percent better than it, you expect from that type of movie. The Breach is like 20 to 30 percent worse than it should be. Can I give you a hot take? Mm-hmm. I feel like The Breach was like kind of a shitty watered down version of The Thing. Yeah. And, like, you know, you read Nick Cutter, you can tell he's, like, The Thing is a big influence on him. I think he's even said it. Yeah. But he's always, in his books, he's always able to kind of take that influence and, like, do his own thing with it. Yeah. In the movie, it just feels like kind of a knockoff. The troop, let's let's talk about the troop. Like, his, yeah. his like, most well-known work. I mean, you've got a Lord of the Flies aspect. It's what? It's all high schoolers that are on the island. Mm-hmm. They go on like, a field trip to an island. And then you've got this sort of like Lord of the Flies aspect that's introduced. Plus, you've got this body horror that's happening. 
this sort of medical situation that's happening. And it feels mm-hmm. like they're isolated on mm-hmm. this island for this field trip. That's how it's all happening. And you can sort right. of immerse yourself in this world of body horror. You could actually see it happening. You can see like, okay, there's a, a world in which this could happen. You know, mm-hmm. the breach felt like, um, cause I, I literally watched the thing, you know, two weeks ago. So this is like Mm. fresh in my mind. Watching The Breach, I was like, oh, this just feels like a really, feels like you took the thing and just put it in the woods and then just sort of like patched on a couple other it, it felt very mm-hmm. slapshot. You know? Yeah, exactly. It, it felt like, because the movie's not long. Right. And it really needed to be a longer film. Like, mm-hmm. it needed another half hour, I think. You could, like, the thing is, The Breach, and, like, Nick Cutter in general, he's such a good writer. Yeah. And he's so, like I said, I mean, when the, when the gross-out stuff happens in the troop, and I don't want to say what moment it is, I can tell you, like, after. <laughs> after we stop recording, <laughs> if you're curious. Um... But there's one big gross out moment that happens that I just, I literally, like I was on I-40 somewhere in Arizona, like super late at night. And I took my hands off the wheel and like threw them to my face. Like, oh my God. (laughs) And then my car veered across like two lanes of traffic. (laughs) And I was like, I almost like literally Nick Cutter almost killed me. He's such a good rider (laughs) that I literally almost died. Like, (laughs) because he's, he's just got a great, like he's got a very non-showy way of writing it's very muscular it's very like you know kind of just the facts sort of thing but then his the way he describes things he's so immersive that you're just like you're feeling it's like so tactile like you feel and smell it all and like but it's also it's really tight there's not a mm -hmm. lot of like over description or like there's not a lot of facts comes from it he it's tight yeah and like that's that's a lesson and like as someone who i think has a tendency to like i can get a little too like wordy (laughs) with my stuff i fall into the stephen king trap (laughs) a little too much (laughs) i try to look to writers like nick cutter and be like see that like if i can start pushing myself more and more to try to try to take like that approach where it's like shorter sharper it's like a lot of stuff i learned as a screamer you know, mm-hmm. you read a Nick Cutter novel, you, you're you watching it as if you're watching a movie. Like, you see everything. Yes. And he's just, he's just so fucking good. And it's like, his books are so cinematic that it's like, you could almost just use the book as the screenplay and, like, turn the cameras on. You know? that's, that's what I didn't, I mean, I haven't read The Breach, the book. But mm-hmm. if you've got such a great book by such a great author, why do we feel the need to, mm, I don't know, take such a deviation? From well, it? I think some of the choices they made were because they were they didn't have the time to develop things. So they were trying to, they were trying to like shortcut a lot of things. Mm-hmm. But they do add the subplot that I just, I mean, if they'd had time to develop it, it would have worked. And again, with better actors, it might have worked. The whole sort of love triangle thing. Yeah. But like you said, it just kind of feels, all of it feels slapped together. Yeah. It doesn't really, it just doesn't have enough cohesiveness to it. Mm -hmm. I'd love to see the troupe adapted. He's also, his second novel is Nut Cutter, The Deep. Um, That one, The Deep is like genetically engineered to specifically freak me out. Because it's like (laughs) bugs. It's uh-huh. like all of my phobias. It's like <laughs> bugs, claustrophobia, and underwater at the bottom of the Marianas Trench. And like anyone yeah. who knows me knows those are like my biggest, like those are my big three. Like <laughs> I will not go into the ocean beyond my eagles. Uh-huh. 
I do not do bugs at all. <laughs> yeah. He's really great in general at bug horror. Yeah, yep. Yeah, he is. I agree. And then I'm claustrophobic and you're in this undersea base at the bottom of the Marianas Trench and you just really feel the walls closing in. Yep. And I, like, I actually had a hard time getting through the deep. Yeah. Because it was like, like I like enjoyed reading the troop mm-hmm. and I could go back and reread the troop. I don't think I could reread the deep because it actually like, it fucked me up too much. You know what? Let's, let's talk about bug shit for a second. Okay. okay. Because Get out of my head, Scotty. God, how do you know what I'm thinking about? So yesterday, driving around town, I was deep diving an argument in my head as to why the the book, it was better than the movie, even though I loved the movie. Mm-hmm. And one, one of my issues was that they changed how Hockstetter dies. Yes. Now, don't get me wrong. I liked how it was done in the movie. It was great that he dies down in the sewers. But in the book, he dies in the junkyard when he's, with, he's going with back the, to visit with the fridge, refrigerator. Right. And it's the bug. It's that moment yes. with Paul that is so well written. It's so good. It's like King at his best in mm. like a gross body horror moment yeah. that he doesn't do a lot. And I thought he, that was like a moment where he really, he like, he shined in that moment. That was, mm-hmm. that was a great body horror bug driven death. Well, yeah. yeah. Cause they're like flying leeches basically. Yeah. And like, there's the moment where the one like crawls into his mouth and he feels it burning into his tongue. Yes. Like, yeah. And that, I mean, that is the moment in the book that prop like, I love it. I love the book. Most of it, I don't, even when I was younger and I read it, I didn't find all that scary. Yeah, I don't think it as a whole is the scare. I, I think the movie translates better than the book in terms of being scary. Yeah, I, I would actually agree with that. I think the movie is scarier than the book. The book where you were saying like you've read, uh, you've watched Hell House 15 times and it's like a comfort watch. That's how it is for me. It's like what I loved so much about it actually was like, I felt like the Losers Club were my friends, and it was just, I like to go hang out with them sometimes, so I'll just <laughs> reread the book, you know? Totally. So, like, but it does have a couple moments that I would say did scare me when I first read it. And the one that always sticks in my head is Patrick Hockstetter. Like, yeah. that is by far the scariest moment. I well, he's also book. presented as a total sociopath. Right? Yeah, he's he he himself is scary. He is a great character. He's mm-hmm. a great character in this. I mean, you've got characters who are a little more like obvious in their issues. What who's the main bad guy character? The Henry Bowers. Yes. Henry Bowers is more like your typical bad guy, but Hockstetter is like a special type. Like he's a true sociopath. You what know? I like that he does with Henry Bowers is he starts off Henry as like Oh, he's a typical juvenile delinquent bully um, who's got, like, a bad home life. He's got this abusive father. But I think his descent into genuine, like, madness, where he, like, essentially just loses his mind and is becoming progressively schizophrenic, is pretty effective. But I agree with you. Like, he's, you you sort of know where things are going to go with Henry. Yeah. Patrick was such a, like, wait, what the fuck? Who is this? Cool, fucked up, so Yeah. Just, yeah. And back to Nick Cutter, like he has a great in the troop, he has a great Patrick Hockstetter like character. Mm-hmm. Like one of the kids is like he's like a little Patrick Hockstetter. Yeah. I I want to like give the appropriate amount of love to Nick Cutter because I think he's fantastic. Mm-hmm. I just think, you know, the movie I look at the movie in some like I was pretty annoyed watching the movie. Yeah. And I think it's because I like I had 
too high hopes for it. Yeah. But when I really think about it, it's like, it was maybe like a noble failure. I think they were trying to capture things from the book and it just doesn't work. It just I mean, doesn't work. The movie as a whole wasn't awful. It, I mean, it's easy to pick about a gun. I, I really thought that the the makeup, the imagery was pretty well done. Like mm-hmm. I, I thought that, that was like a standout. It's just that the acting was so poor that there was like no continuity across the board. I couldn't rectify mm. the experience across the board you know the biggest like from a moment to moment basis it has some good moments sure. but yeah i think you and i were on the same page because the acting like i said i think the main guy is actually not bad mm-hmm. but he's really the only one <laughs> <laughs> the acting really hurts the movie and then the writing again the writing in a moment like i feel like there's moments of dialogue but i'm like okay nick cut or craig davidson wrote that like you yeah. feel like his voice coming through in these moments, but structurally the movie doesn't work because it's Good just, enough. it's, it's both too long and too short. Yeah. They tried to overcome, they tried to shove too much in and they're just not able to develop it. The the material, the way it needed to be developed. So yeah. it all feels, it feels very episodic and very disjointed in a way that yeah. the book really doesn't. And, and I believe the book is still only available as an audiobook. Yeah. And I remember Nick Cutter is actually a great writer to listen to on audiobook because his books are so like kind of lean and mean and muscular that just if you have the right narrator, it just really sucks you in, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think actually everything of his that I've read, I think I did on audiobook. Yeah. At least started on audiobook. What are you reading now? Um, I'm reading a couple things. So I'm reading Holly. I'm not sure about it yet. I'll be honest. Listen, I was hoping we would get to this today, okay? So mm-hmm. I can't fucking stand Mr. Mercedes. I hated it. I don't mm-hmm. like the whole trilogy. I don't like the Holly character. And I I know I'm, I'm, not, I, a I I'm not a huge fan either. I feel like I'm in the minority on this. Every time I find myself on like a thread, people are like, oh, Holly, she's a beloved character. And I'm like, I just, I'm not feeling it. I don't feel, mm-hmm. the whole storyline, I'm not interested in. I'm not sold on it. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm giving it a shot. Mm-hmm. But so far, I'm like, there's stuff I'm liking about it, but I'm not that far into it yet. I thought the opening, of, and I don't want to spoil it, but like the opening reveal of who the baddies are. Yeah. I was like, okay, this is interesting. But kind of, yeah. I'm with you. I'm not a Holly Gibney fan. The only version of her that I've liked mm-hmm. was the HBO adaptation of The Outsider, which is I, actually an improvement on the book, I think. That was fucking great. Jason Bateman mm-hmm. was great in that. Loved it. I feel like like the book, The Outsider, it's one of his, like, it's pretty good, but it kind of falls apart when Holly comes in. Yeah. And actually, I feel like when she comes in on the series, because the changes they made to the characters, Richard Price was the writer showrunner. He's a great writer in his own right. Mm-hmm. So he was able to, I think, kind of identify some of the problems with yeah. that character. Yep. And it created just a much more interesting version of the character. And then I feel like the way the story unfolds, it's pretty faithful to the novel. It just works better in the series, I think. Right. I, you know, when it comes to the Mr. Mercedes book series, I didn't hate them, but I didn't love them. The one I, I liked actually the second one, Finders Keepers, I thought was the best of the three. I thought it was probably the, the best. Yes, the best, but I, yeah. As a whole, it just, it's not my vibe. Part of what makes Fender's Keepers better is that actually the the Bill Hodges and uh, Holly Gibney characters are kind of more in the background of that one. Mm-hmm. They're not yeah. really driving the story as much. Right. 
And yeah, Holly, like the book Holly, it's just like, I don't know. Like, we'll see. So I'm reading that. I'm also, I started reading, but I, another one I'm not sold on because it's an older book. It's from the 90s. It's more of a crime novel. It's called God is a Bullet um, by a writer named Boston Taran. Mm-hmm. And I just know because there's a movie version of that that's come out. And it's been one of those like infamous novels that I've wanted to read for a long time. I saw the trailer for the movie and was like, okay, maybe I'll take the chance and try and read the book. And like, I don't know, it's just kind of bumming. Like, it's super dark. And it's, but it's dark in a way that's just kind of bumming me out. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm not enjoying this. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not that it's like all that. I mean, it is very violent, but it's not that. It's just the characters are so unlikable. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know about this one. So I'm, I'm sort of, muddling through those two but i may i may dnf them i don't know because i want to get to something that i'm enjoying what are you reading right now have you read so i just finished the last house on needless street i have not read that yet i've got you on a word i've been really wanting to read that i loved it i didn't know what to expect i mean Mm -hmm. it's been like audible has been like suggesting it to me for ages they're like you're gonna love it and i'm like shut the fuck up audible Mm -hmm. do my thing eventually finally got around to reading it loved it it's one of those where it doesn't go the way you think it's going the whole time mm. and it ends in a delightful way and it is fucked up and awesome like i really liked it it's a slow it's it's not a slow burn it's just a big book it's a big book it's mm-hmm. longer but man great visuals fucked up like great storyline really unexpected i thought it was like refreshing i have heard nothing but good things about that book and then her she's got a newer novel i don't know if it's her most recent but (laughs) the other one i keep hearing about is the sundial i haven't read her at all yet and i keep hearing really great things about her yeah i that's my first book i've ever read by her and i really really liked that i thought it was great Mm -hmm. um and i'm reading billy summers i don't know what i think i like i'm too early in the book to make a a call on this i get short-tempered about stephen king books that have like (laughs) no like good horror and like i don't like his detective novels i really don't and i get when i have to read them i will say about billy summers Mm -hmm. i actually really liked it okay i understand the people who don't like it okay i'm literally like on chapter one so set that so like sell me on it what am i about to get into well, it's so for one thing, it's not really a detective story. It's more just a straightforward crime thriller. And it's more about. It's a hitman. There's a hitman. Yeah. Right. And it's like, it, you know, there's no mystery to solve. It's just like, it's it's sort of the typical hitman pulls off a hit, things go wrong. Then he has to, like, you know. Yeah. Uh, then people are coming after him now and stuff. But it's just, I thought he was a more interesting character. I thought the logistics of the hit. And the planning and everything was actually pretty well done. There's a character that you're either going to love or hate. I don't want to say too much about her, but it's a female character. It has an interesting tie-in to Dr. Sleep, actually, which, again, I don't want to say too much about. Really? Okay. Okay. And then I thought it's one of his better endings. So, I like, I don't want to oversell it. I don't think it's, like, it's not a Stephen King classic. Sure. Yeah. But as his crime fiction goes, it's among his better crime novels. And it and it's not uh, Bill Hodges' Holly Goodman story. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it just seems like he's wanting to go in that direction. He's wanting to do more of the crime novel kind of thing. And I'm like, I'm not really here for it. Like, I don't think it. it's his strength. You know, I love a good it. crime crime novel, but I don't think it's it's not the Uncle Stevie I know. It's yeah. Like, just, uh, so Billy know. Summers is like better than others, but 
Okay. Um, yeah, I'll be curious what you think of it because because I, I do know a lot of people didn't like it, and I think it's because it's same thing. It's just like this isn't the Stephen King I want. Yeah, it it's it's just not it's not my interest level. I don't like I'm not into like true crime. I'm not into like detectives. I'm not really into hitmen. That's not really my vibe. Mm-hmm. But listen, I joined Stephen King book club. I swore an oath <laughs> that I would read the whole you know, whole bibliography. So I'm going to get through it, but I'm mm-hmm. not super stoked about it. I did just finish Everything's Eventual, which I did like, mm-hmm. but only yeah. because I truly in my heart of hearts believe Stephen King is at his best when he writes short stories. I think, I think when he's, you know, short stories and novellas, when, when he's not able to kind of go on his sort of digressions, yeah. Um, yeah. he's not able to allow the story to, to bloat the way he can tend to. Right, right. I mean, um, I love, like, uh, for me, one of his best books in recent years was Full Dark, No Stars. Holy shit. Like, yeah. fantastic, great, no notes, loved it, absolutely. But I think yeah. he's he's really amazing when he does short stories, like, beginning, middle, end, get to it, get to it. No term, no time for, like, flabbiness. You know, mm-hmm. he's just, he can do a really tight short story. I mean, I, I still think The Boogeyman from Night Shift is one of the most terrifying okay. stories ever written. Did, didn't that just come out as a movie? Yeah, and I'm supposed to uh, have a couple people on at some point. We're going to talk about it. it. I haven't seen it, but I've not heard good things. Oh, uh, yeah, that's a bummer. Yeah. The, the book was... I was going to watch it, but then... Uh, I had it all like set up to watch, I don't know, a couple months ago. And then I didn't make it. I think I even bought the movie ticket and everything and I didn't make it. Really? <laughs> yeah. I, the story was so fun in like a traditional campfire mm-hmm. story. Yeah. Like that's a story I want to sit around the campfire and tell. You know? Well, it's you know it's the perfect length too, and I think the problem with the movie is is you take this very like perfect little bite of a story and you try to expand it to ninety minutes, you're gonna have to add a lot of filler and a lot of over explanation and stuff. I haven't seen the movie, but that my guess is that's where it goes wrong. Another story of his that I love that has led to some not great films is Children of the Corn. Yeah. Yeah, which is a bummer because I watched Children of the Corn when I was probably like six, which is why I lucked out and then I read the story before I saw any of the movies. I I mean, I think if you watch the movies and then try to read the story, it's going to kind of ruin the story for you. Sure, sure. Um, Did you hear there is a, there's a Stephen King movie coming out. I have literally zero expectations about it, but in theory could be amazing. It's called Bloodlines and it's based on the short story within Pet Cemetery that Judd, wait, the, um, I did hear something. You know what I'm talking about? How he tells him, he warns him about not going to the Pet Cemetery. The Timmy Baderman story. Yep. And he was like, this happened before and this is what happened. And it's a fucked up story. And it's just like mm-hmm. a blip within the book, but it's a great short story within the book. Mm-hmm. So apparently Pet Cemetery Bloodlines is supposed to be that story developed, which I have- Could really work. Or I mean, they could blow it, but- Could be amazing. I mean, they're probably going to blow it, but <laughs> could be amazing because that is a great short story within Pet Cemetery. Well, I mean, and, and this is not like a hot take because I think almost everyone agrees with this. But I mean, I think Pet Cemetery is by far his scariest book. Yes. And yeah. the Timmy Baderman story is so just, you just feel icky when you're done with it. It's gross. So yeah. they can capture that just sense of wrongness from that story. Yep. That could be pretty good. So good. I, I do think I would put Pet Cemetery in like, I, I think it's probably his best. Yeah. That's a hot take, but I'm going to say his scariest. Yeah. 
It's the scariest. I'm not. It's well. It's not my favorite because the stand is my favorite. I do love the stand, but I mean, Pet Cemetery. Just the visuals in it are. Pet so Cemetery is. It's his most successful straight up horror novel. I, uh-huh. think. I mean, yeah. The Shining is pretty great too. And actually, Misery is. I reread that not too long ago. Misery is great. Misery is really upsetting. <laughs> Misery is so good because am I right in remembering that there's like no supernatural to it yeah there's really no i mean typical stephen king he like i think he throws little hints of supernatural towards the end but it's like it's really not it's really not yeah i think yeah to me like the most successful like scary stephen king novels are like the four that i would point out would be pet cemetery the shining misery and then actually revival love revival yeah i mean i think revival's his best recent book i think that I will tell you, Stephen King Book Club truly believes that the last 10 pages of Revival are the best 10 pages that we've read in horror. Well, because it's just so, and it sticks with you, and it's just so bleak. And it's bleak in a way you don't expect Stephen King to be. Because yeah. he usually, <laughs> unless he's writing a Bachman book, he usually doesn't go that dark. Like, get my therapist endings. on the horn. I have to revisit everything I thought I knew. <laughs> right. <laughs> And yeah, I think Pet Cemetery. I mean, that's the first Stephen King I ever read, and that's what hooked me. Yeah. I mean, my two favorite Stephen King books are The Stand and Punt Wilds. Go and say my three favorite are The Stand, The Dead Zone, and um, It. And those are, but for me, those are hangout books. Those are, I like to hang out with the characters more than yeah. really anything else. Yeah. I mean, there's moments in each of them that are pretty disturbing and upsetting but that's not why i read them yeah um whereas like pit cemetery is like if i want to be scared that's pet cemetery you know so good yeah yeah well i'm i'm in i'm in i'll give the this bloodlines thing a try i i I think i had read something about it but i didn't know much i have no expectations but man if they actually did develop out that short story that's a that's a killer short story yeah if they do it right it could work Yeah. yeah But they're probably not. Probably not. All right. Well, we're back here with Chad Brummett. Uh, So how's it going, Chad? It's going pretty good, man. You know, staying busy, staying crazy. (laughs) So uh, for those of you listeners who don't know Chad, anyone in Albuquerque knows Chad, but uh, (laughs) what would you say you are? You're like local actor, filmmaker, journalist, news anchor, man about town. Like what's your title these days? (laughs) That's good. Yeah. Um, that's, yeah, a guy that doesn't sleep a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, this was kind of directing Dracula is kind of a one-off. Mm-hmm. Spend most of my days now, you know, being a multimedia journalist and, mm-hmm. and, and, but I had a hankering a little over a year ago when the Vortex put out a call for directors to, uh, revisit this play Dracula that, that I had performed in twice, but had not directed. What is it about this version of Dracula? Like, is this is like a specific version, right? It's a Mac Wellman? Yeah. So this version of Dracula is, it's probably the most bizarre adaptation that you'll okay. find on the stage. You know, I think a lot of people are familiar with the 19, I think it's 1929 that the right. stage production was published, uh, from which the Bela Lugosi movie was based. You know? Right. So a lot of people will think of him parlor and tuxedos a lot of british people talking there are british people in this show but um no parlors no tuxedos mm-hmm. mac wellman is a postmodernist sort of playwright mm-hmm. his work is all of his works you know the hyacinth macaw murder of crows uh those are probably some of his, his more famous works they're just very bizarre works of theater but this is kind of this adaptation 
for fans of the book, there's a lot that you will recognize. Mm-hmm. He's lifted a lot of passages directly from Bram Stoker's novel. Oh, cool. And he's he's shaped them in different ways and he's you know created a couple of characters. He's amalgamized a couple of characters. Um, but I think he really captures the essence and the tone of Bram Stoker's novel. As bizarre as it is, it's one of the truest adaptations, I think, to the essence of what Bram Stoker was going for, in, mm-hmm. in my opinion. And the thing is, I mean, in some ways, it's before we were talking about postmodernism, but right. you can look at Bram Stoker's novel as as kind of a postmodern horror novel. You know, it's this ep- epistolary uh, story. It's all told through letters. And so it's very self-referential to its own structure yeah. in a way that was not common with a lot of Victorian literature. Yeah. So it kind of yeah. seems like like one, you know, just like a quick step to doing a postmodern stage version. And if I'm not mistaken, the 1929 version, I've never read it, but that's, yeah. you know, it's it's what the movie, like you said, the Bella Lugosa movie is based on. It's actually not that faithful to the novel, right? No, it's no, it's, very it's really, yeah, it's really not. And I think a lot of it, you know, has to do with just the logistical requirements. I think the theater at the time was being produced, you know, the Stoker's novel is expansive. It, it, mm-hmm. it traverses a lot of locations. Um, there's a lot of different, you know, uh, settings in the book. But, right. you know, in 1929, when it's based in, you know, sort of a proscenium theater where it's just one set, they, they couldn't have you know, Dracula's castle and right. with the carbacks and you know the Demeter and all these locations. So they did, I think, what you know, a lot of plays, you know, at, at the time were giving it was based in a central location and inspired by. But I I personally don't think it was very faithful to the novel, which yeah. you know, take poetic license with it as you will, but and you know, Mac Wellman certainly takes poetic license oh, yeah. in this mature you know, as someone that's read the book a number of times, you know, there's there's a lot that I'm like, that's, that's, that's like the characters and, mm-hmm. you know, Jonathan, the way he's portrayed in this is not that way it's in the book. But I think there are things because it is so fringe and so out there, it gives you the opportunity, I think, to appreciate the story in a different way. When did the original, uh, when did Mac um, Wellman's version originally, when was it originally produced? I think it was the early 90s. I want to say it was the early 90s. I may be wrong about that. I was introduced to it in uh, 2004 when it was a member of Trick Lock Company, a local theater company here in Albuquerque. And we produced it uh, coming off of a tour that we did in Eastern Europe. And I played Jonathan in that production. Okay. Uh, And then a few years later, it was done as a collaboration between Trick Lock, who then became resident theater company and then for a while. Mm-hmm. We did with the Department of Theater of Kings, uh, and in that version of everything else. So, you know, I've, I've, I've known of the script for about 20 years and talked it a couple of times. But, you know, I think as, you know, every actor and any sort of artist, you know, you use a film like to understand this. It's like you read something and you get your own vision, your own mm-hmm. idea of the way to produce it. And it really just, the opportunity presented itself to propose it in context. And so put in a proposal and thought about it. Mm-hmm. And it fortunately got accepted. Well, it's interesting. Like, I mean, and just for for the listeners' knowledge, you and I, I mean, we've known each other just about 20 years now. Yeah. About, uh, almost about 20 years. Time, yeah. <laughs> we yeah. started working together back in 2004. Yeah, and I um, remember when we were shooting, it was a short film called Something Red. One of the only short films I don't have online, unfortunately. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not allowed to put it online because of SAG rules. Oh, but, no. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember either before, immediately before or after that, you and I talking about this version of dracula you guys yeah. had either just done it or you were just preparing to do it 
Yeah. And I don't think I saw your production of it at the time. So I'm really excited to see what you guys, what was it? I mean, I, another thing, just so people know, you are a big horror fan. You're about as big a yeah. horror geek as I am. Yes. What, what, what is it about this specific character and this specific storyline that really drew you to wanting to revisit it? Well, you know, I think some of it is that, uh, like you said, I'm a big fan of horror and particularly the universe monsters and and the various inspirations that dracula has has had on cinema throughout the years Mm -hmm. uh going back to fw murnau and Esperatu, right the you know bella lugosi version which you know as as much as i love the iconography of bella lugosi in my opinion it's it's not one of my favorite adaptations no and in the Universal Monster movies, honestly, The Mummy is my favorite uh, with Boris Karloff. Oh, interesting. That's my favorite Universal Monster movie. Because uh, mine's Frankenstein, but Mummy is pretty great, too. It's, it's yeah, and I don't know what it is about it. But, you know, the, the vampire character and the Dracula character is just such an ingrained part mm-hmm. of the lexicon of modern horror. And in, right. in various ways, you know... Emerges over the years, and what struck me about this was, you know, just kind of having the ideas of, of staging. You know, when you're an actor, a lot of times I was there to do this, I was there to do that. So it's like, all right, we'll put your money where your mouth is, and yeah. just get out and direct it. Um, I was inspired by the style of steampunk, mm. and I knew early on that that, you know, was was some element, and it really kind of became an overarching. Aesthetic that we use in the show, but there's also a, a specific reason that we're using it. Part of it is that you know the idea of steampunk really just kind of assembling things to be functional and utilitarian. Mm-hmm. You know, it created its own style, but you know, exposed gears, exposed mechanisms. It's like right. we're slapping things together without maybe not fully understanding how it works. It's just rudimentary engineering. And there's an element of Dracula, and I think particularly with the scientists that kind of have this hubris of thinking they understand the the natural world, natural order of things. Mm-hmm. And here comes this creature that's like actually you don't. You think right. you understand. And humanity has a history of doing that. You know, in the 19th century with the Industrial Revolution, we ran with this technology before fully understanding the long term. Um, environmental impact for the fossil fuels, for example. Mm-hmm. In the 1940s, we did it with atomic energy, mm-hmm. technology, and not fully understanding the rush to build the bomb without understanding its long-term effects. And I think we're dealing with it now with artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. You know, right. that this this technology can sometimes get away from us, and we don't understand the ramifications that, that it could potentially have. Mm-hmm. And it's it's almost, again, the natural order of things saying you think you understand this, but you really don't. Well, it always goes to like, you know, when I, I when I teach my horror class, and I've obviously mentioned it on this podcast before, you know, my basic definition of horror is the irrational invading a rational space. It's like yeah, uh, we think, you know, we're in we're in this ordered rational space that we understand and something violates it. And so I think part of the attraction to Victorian era horror is like that was a time period where we were really on this cusp of like this modernity really getting away from us. The sense of like what was rational was opening the doors to a lot of irrationality. Yeah. And so, you know, Dracula becomes 
like we're 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 kind of just straddling the the primitive world and the modern world in a, a way that we really haven't before or since you know yeah and i think that's that's a big part of, of and that's uh, the whole steampunk thing i mean that's that yeah. is that's the appeal i think of steampunk so yeah and so it to me it was it was just a you know obviously a match made in heaven you're mm-hmm. talking about the aesthetics you know plus it looks really cool it's always yeah. <laughs> That always helps with production design. Yeah. One quick aside, I just want to, uh, uh, then we'll get the, the basic info on the play. Yeah. But I'm just curious, you uh, you and I, I think we agree that the Bella Lugosi Dracula mm-hmm. is not uh, the best uh, version of mm-hmm. Dracula you can find. Have you ever seen the Spanish language version that they shot at the same time? I have not. I've heard about it, but I've never seen it. it if you ever get a chance, it is it is interesting. And I think it's... Yeah. It's a significantly better film. Really? Okay. Yeah, it's I've, just, I've heard that. I... Just a lot livelier. They, you know, it's like they were uh, watching what the, you know, the stuffy Americans were doing during the day, and we're like, we can, we can do better. And so at night, when no one was watching, they're like, let's whip the camera around, let's make the dresses sexier, let's, you know, it's just, it's a lot more interesting. So if you ever get yeah. a chance to watch it, you should check it out. I've, I've heard that, and that, yeah, that they, when it was dark, that they were using that same set. Mm-hmm. which i think is a story in and of itself to me that's that's a movie itself the making yeah happen. it's a really you know? great it's just a really great little bit of horror movie trivia history <laughs> so <laughs> well tell give us give us the broad details when does it open where does it open uh, where can people get tickets so it opens september 29th at the vortex theater and it runs through i think it's october 15th it's a three okay. weekend run it the second and third weekend coincide with the albuquerque international balloon fiesta so it's a good mm. thing if you're in town if you're you know listening and you're from planning come to albuquerque for fiesta let's see the balloons in the morning take a nap comes to dracula at night yeah. that's kind of the idea tickets can be purchased online at vortexabq.org that is the the website for vortex theater you can also purchase them uh, at the box office uh, but it is limited seating. It's about an 80 seat theater, I think. Um, okay. So because it's a black box, it's not, you know, a huge pristine theater. It's an intimate space. And mm-hmm. you know, to set the actors, the whole thing really kind of fills up that space. Awesome. Well, I'm definitely going to try and make it. So I'm, I'm excited yeah. to see Yeah, it. looking forward to it. Yeah. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thanks, Chad and Mandy, for coming on. And don't forget to go ahead and rate, review, subscribe. You know, I keep hearing from people that they're really enjoying the show, which I super appreciate. And I'm super happy to hear. And we do have a couple ratings up on Apple Podcasts, but I'd like to see more of it. I'd like to see more of it over there. And it definitely helps get the word out. So, you know, go ahead and do that. Tell your friends. And I'm going to be back next time with author Rebecca Rowland. So I'll talk to you guys again in a couple of weeks.